We are looking uh, this morning again at the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And if you were to study this book, you'd find that early patristics, those early church fathers that came right after the disciples, uh, actually read the book of Isaiah, and they would often call it the fifth gospel. Uh, One church father, Jerome, speaking of it, said that it should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet. Because all the mysteries of Christ and the church, he says them so clearly that you would think that he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than a future experience that has yet to come. We, we have one of, the most, uh, one of those texts this morning that we are looking at that it seems as though the prophet is looking at Christ himself as he describes the coming of Christ. We find this in Isaiah 49, 1-13 that we just read. Now, we have been tracing this summer through the servant uh, section of Isaiah in chapters 40-55, to where God intends to comfort His people. He is comforting them over the failure of their kings. In fact, as we find the first chapters of Isaiah, uh, we are finding a catalog of some of the, even the best kings of Judah. Uh, Kings like Hezekiah. And and yet, what we find is is that even those kings failed to bring about the justice. Failed to lead them to worship and serve God as they should. Becoming a light to the nations. God promised to fulfill His promises to Abraham. Through a Spirit-filled Son of David. Who would come as a king. Establishing an eternal kingdom. Free from sin and death. A kingdom that would find a blessing that would pour out and shine forth to the nations. But Isaiah 48, just before our song this morning, we find that it does not end with hope, but a a kind of despair. It has highlighted the failure of the nation of Israel as God's servant. The the nation was God's servant, and yet they failed. Uh, Even their kings failed. We we are told in verse 8 of Isaiah 48 that they were born Rebels. Sounds hopeless if you're born a rebel against God and you're supposed to be born to make God known. Isaiah 49 is the second servant song in this section that we've been studying this summer, but it is different in a really cool way from Isaiah 42, that first song. If you read the first song, Isaiah 42, it is actually, it reads like biography. The Lord is telling you about His coming servant. But here's what's neat about this song. We find that it reads more like autobiography. It is the servant himself speaking forth about who he is. He is telling you who God says he is. And so we are hearing from the very voice of this unique individual servant. Almost as though Christ is speaking to us. This utterly unique servant enters into the despair of Israel and the nations and gives them something by the end to sing about. I mean, what a beautiful transition. It it begins with despair and ends with singing. Our big idea this morning is this, and if you take notes, you can go ahead and write it down. It's this. Our servant king came to deliver us out of despair of sin to joy in him. That's why the servant king came, to deliver us out of the despair of sin and into joy which is only found in him. Uh, Notice first, the servant 
introduces himself as the greater prophet and Israel in verses 1 to 3. Now, now the servant, you'll notice in verse 1, if you look there, that he speaks with a kind of unprecedented authority. He is calling the whole world and all peoples saying, listen to me. Now, you have to admit it's kind of audacious for a human to actually say, I believe that every person on planet Earth right now needs to stop whatever they're doing because I'm important enough to listen to, and what I have to say, it matters to everyone. Now, if, you're, if you have a two-year-old, you've probably experienced that before. Those things really happen. And maybe some of us as 30-year-olds have acted that way, or 40-year-olds, and so on. But we find that prophets often say, listen, introducing the reality that they are about to speak on behalf of the Lord. But only Isaiah uses this phrase, listen to me, and always with respect to the covenant-keeping God of Israel. God says, listen to me. He, he this servant, he looks like a prophet, but you see he's, he's actually saying something greater about himself. Listen to what I have to say. My voice carries the weight. Yet he still looks like a prophet. He looks like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, who also was called from the womb, and he was named by name by the Lord. So you see the prophetic nature of his ministry. You see it again in verse 2, where he is using this war metaphor, talking about his words as weapons. You'll see that he says there, look with me at verse 2. He being God, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. Now, you can see that God, in this illustration, personally and intentionally sharpens the mouth of his servant. This is what he considers to be his mission. It's kind of like God is a soldier who is sitting there sharpening his sword, the mouth of this servant, and polishing his arrows, preparing for a specific task. Now swords, you'll remember, they, they fight enemies that are close. And then arrows, they hit targets and enemies that are far away. And so regardless of what the enemy is, he is ready with this servant. He is fit for the task. And notice the servant repeats that God hid me twice. You might say, well, why is he saying that God is hiding him? Is God being shady? God is never shady. No, what he's doing here is he's concealing him as a concealed weapon. He's revealing in this moment, though, that God has called him out as his concealed weapon to be revealed, and he's kind of being revealed in this moment in a sense. And notice the servant repeats that God, after he repeats that God hid him, we also see that the servant is more than a prophet in verse 3. Look what he says there. He says, and he said to me, so now he's speaking of what God said to him, this servant, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now Israel can speak of the nation of Israel sometimes when you see that word. It's often used that way in the Old Testament. But here, God is actually speaking to a singular 
servant, an individual. And he's calling him Israel. Now let me just make a couple of quick points here. Uh, first, there are disagreements about who is being spoken to here. I take it as an individual. Uh, also, uh, if you look in Isaiah 48.8, you'll notice that this individual looks different than the Israel of Isaiah 48. It's there that I said before that God says of physical Israel, the nation, before birth you were called a rebel. They had failed. They had failed to keep uh, covenant with God. They they committed injustice amongst one another and, and with the nations. They served their idols. They did not faithfully serve God as they were created and raised up to do. Second, God prepared this singular servant in Isaiah 49 as a king to succeed where Israel failed. You might say, I don't see king here. We'll see king language later. But if you look through the Old Testament, you'll find that when this title, servant of God, is used, it's used almost, or I think, over 30 times for King David. King David is kind of the servant of God par excellence. And kings represented their people. So much so that if you were a king, you could say, I am Israel. Now, I am an American citizen, but you'll never hear me say, I am America. Like, that'll be weird, right? But it wasn't weird for a king. He so represented that people that as went the king, so went the people. Israel, in chapter 49, as they are despairing over their sin and its consequences, their rebellion against God and his just exile of them, They need a word of hope. And the word of hope is not that they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and try again because they have failed and failed and failed. No, the answer to their failure is not in themselves. It is outside of themselves. It is a coming king, this servant, Jesus. Sorry, I fast-forwarded to the end. Feels good to say Jesus, though, doesn't it? And here we find that the king of Isaiah, the kings of Isaiah, and the king that they look to in Isaiah 139 is also the servant of Isaiah 49. He will succeed where Israel failed again and again. But he will also be greater than that in verse 3, where it adds, he is Israel in whom I will be glorified. If you have an ESV Bible, you probably have a little footnote in there, if it's anything like mine, that says that this phrase could also be translated, in whom I will display my beauty. This is the one in which my beauty, the beauty of the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, will be displayed and made known. This word for display my beauty, it's used nine times in Isaiah. And uh, Alec Moyer speaks of this, saying in every other case, this phrase, display my beauty, uh, the Lord shows his beauty by what he does for his people, but only here it is what is done for the Lord that displays his beauty. There is no one who shows the beauty of the Lord like this person. It is God who displays his beauty, and this person is showing the beauty of God, saying he is different than others. Now, the Bible doesn't speak of a prophet or Israel like God speaks of this servant here, or he speaks of himself. He is utterly unique. There is none like him. That's what we should see when we read verses 1 to 3. Now, I I once uh, was visiting a, a friend who was a big hunter, and When I say big hunter, I'm talking, he like builds his own guns and bullets to go and to hunt bear 
in Russia. And so he's, he's getting this gun ready. As I come in one day, and I'm like, what are you doing? I thought he was like setting the sights. He's like, no, I'm building the thing, and I'm going to use this gun to kill, to shoot a bear in Russia. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking to myself, what happens if you miss? And he says, well, you become a bear burger. You only get one shot. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that does not sound fun. I'm a risk and reward kind of guy. That seems like a major risk and not enough of a reward to make up for it. So follow me. Imagine for a second that you are Israel and God's servant to rescue the nations, to make his beauty known over all the face of the earth. But the Old Testament records that you miss the mark more than you hit it. You miss again and again. You are mostly bear burger. You're getting chewed on by the nations. You're in exile. You think that God's given up on that gun and he's going to make a new one. That your hope is gone. You've rebelled against God and you wonder if he's coming for you. And God promises in this moment a servant king who is going to succeed everywhere that you failed. He is the perfect shot. But you wonder if you'll just be like, Another king. Will this king be like the other kings? The ones who eventually miss or mostly miss? And God says, no, this is my Messiah. He does not miss. He always hits the target. And when it's time for the shot, and it will be one shot, I will reveal my concealed weapon, my servant, the Christ, and he will rescue Israel, and he will bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. That's the moment. Are you with me? That's the moment that history sprints to. The revelation of the glory of this servant, Christ. And it's not just an infinite feedback loop of despair that we are trapped in. Failure and disappointment and hopelessness. There is coming a day when this world is full of nothing but the beauty of the Lord. What a day! And this beauty is going to be seen in God's salvation. But notice that after being polished by God, it doesn't mean that this servant will fly without friction. You might be thinking like, oh, well, like, Lights are going to be turned on. Boom. Servant's here. Not the way that it's pictured. Notice, second, the servant despairs in verses 4 to 6. He's despairing. The verse 4 is really, I think, jarring on the heels of the greatness of the servant in verses 1 to 3. The servant's unique call, his preparation, his purpose, and even timing don't result in the path of least resistance. See, salvation doesn't come easy in this text. You might think to yourself, like you're expecting, I hope maybe we have some Marvel fans here. If you don't, it's okay. We accept all kinds of people. But if you've watched the Marvel movies, you'll remember the way that Thanos won. He what? He snapped his fingers. Like, boom, I win. No cost, just done. But I think what we find in this text is a lot more like the way that Iron Man undid all that Thanos did with the snap of his fingers costing him everything. 
This is going to take sacrifice. Notice what happens in verse 4. He says, he says this, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Now, you'll notice a couple of things here, but uh, first, notice the servant despairs over being weak and empty. That's what I, I think this language is saying. It, it, it's kind of like finding out, as you read about this, I hope you find some hope in it, though. It's kind of like finding out your favorite athlete can't swim or snores. I, I can't swim. I may snore. But when you hear those kinds of things, you're like, they're human. I can relate to them at least on some small level, right? Well, this servant despairs over his self-assessment of his labor and the results. Can you relate to that? He, he worked hard. Notice, he, he spent his strength, and, and yet all he saw at the end of the day was emptiness, nothingness, and futility. And, and despite his great efforts, he had nothing to show for it. You know, this unique servant is not above the experience of the human condition. He despaired. Maybe you've despaired in a, in a lot of ways. I'm sure there are ki all kinds of things, if, if you've lived this life long enough, that you could point to that have brought you to that point. But his, his initial self-assessment in his despair was that all of his strength was not enough to bring about God's people coming back. He, he, he gave his efforts, and yet they still did not return. Have you despaired over your own weakness? Or despaired over the results of all the efforts that you gave? And yet, the hope of results and you did not get them? Have you ever stopped and like tried to sort of assess yourself and said, I don't have it to live up to God's purposes to my life. I just don't have it. I know that he's called me to do stuff. I don't feel like I can do it. I feel weaker the harder I try. Maybe it's a, a sin that you're fighting. And you're like, it just doesn't seem to let go. I feel like at this point in my life, it should be gone. And at some point, you begin to question your own strength. And when that ends, you start to question whether or not God can help you in the ways that He has promised. You're too weak. God's not able. You despair. You, you despair that you're not the husband that you feel like you should be at this point. The wife, after so many years, that you should be. The parent, the friend, the church member, the earner at work that you want to be. You know, if you're in your 40s, you probably experience this thing called a midlife crisis. That, that, that place in life where you remember when you were in your 20s and you had all of these hopes and expectations and everything was just potential energy and the future was bright. And then you hit 40s and you're thinking to yourself, man, like, there were so many things I wish I would have done differently. Man, I, I thought I would be in a different place. I thought... I would have been successful here, but wasn't. Sometimes successful in places I didn't expect, but that's not the thing I think about. I think about all the dreams I had that I did not see come to fruition. We despair that we're not strong enough to bring about our dreams, and we despair that we don't see the results of our labors at making disciples or sharing Christ. We, we don't see them seem to create the kind of fruit that we would expect. We feel like a failure. And like failure will always be our lot. 
Maybe you despair because you feel like your faithfulness as a stay-at-home mom or a retiree is hard and feels unfruitful. Our lives give us plenty of opportunities in a fallen world to despair. But don't miss this. This is a, this is a, a, a song of comfort. And Jesus is God's unique servant. And the point, we have more to say about this later, but at this point, I want you to know the beauty of Christ. He is a servant, a king, who did not ignore your despair. He's not one that left you to it and said, I'm sorry that that's your experience. Like, we'll just stop that now. This is a servant who entered into it with you. He is a man of sorrows. In Luke 9, 21, you'll remember how Jesus cried out, how long am I to be with you? Speaking of an Israel who would not repent and trust the word of God. How long will I have to be here with you? I, I would hope that Jesus wouldn't feel like that with me, but I know that I've created plenty of experiences that might just cause that. It is due to their lack of listening to his words and valuing his miracles over his message. It is a people with a hard heart who reject the Christ. You can feel Christ's despondency in Mark 8, 21, when just after feeding 5,000, his disciples come to him and he says, do you still not yet understand how blind how hard how hard-hearted are you or what about mark 14 27 where he foresaw the disciples he said you're going to scatter when this shepherd is struck and what do they say we're not going to be we're not going to be scattered we'll be here to the end and jesus is like you don't know you like i know you this servant has a unique unparalleled task but he is not above the human experience of despondency But take note, this servant, he despairs over fulfilling God's purposes in his life for the nations. That's what he's despairing over. It's not self-centered. It is a mission to the nations and bringing glory to God. It's a different kind of despair. Oh, that we cared enough, that I cared enough about serving God that I would despair of my weakness. This servant who comes to comfort God's people will do so by entering into their despair with him. His initial self-assessment, notice, is that he is too weak for the task. But then he offers two cures for despair. Two cures for despair. Now the first cure is this. The servant trusts God's assessment of his life over his own assessment. We see this in verse 4. Notice that word, yet. It's a transition. He's despairing, yet. Yet surely, he says, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. I take that first statement to mean something like, I trust God's evaluation of my efforts more than I trust my own. I'm trusting his perspective above mine. And second, to mean, I trust my God with the results of my labors. I trust him. I trust God. So when this servant feels like his efforts are not producing the results, his faithful, arduous efforts, he doesn't do this. He doesn't grumble against God and others. He doesn't give up in his faithfulness. He looks to God with eyes of faith. He labors faithfully even when he doesn't feel up to the task 
trusting God for fruit he does not yet see with his eyes. Do you see it? He is, he is not looking at the circumstances and the experiences which are constant fodder for despair. He looks to God who is the source of hope in every darkness. God is able. He is trusting in the wisdom of God. God knows better than I know. His ways are better than my plans. I, I trust His plan above my own plans. He trusts in the power of God. He says, I know that God is in control of the ship. I am not, and that is a good thing. I don't doubt the sovereignty of God and His providential care for me. He trusts the Lord. This is a different kind of servant than kings like Hezekiah, who when they get scared, run to Babylon looking for help. This this servant, this king, he looks to God. He's really trusting in him. God is working through him, and God is able to do more than he can think or imagine. Do you believe that God's able to do that, brothers and sisters? I do. I think that's something that our church is known for. The second cure for despair comes from God's word to his servant in verses 5 to 6. In verse 5, he repeats his calling from birth and his mission to gather the remnant of Israel back to God. And then he says, For I am honored. You remember, he, he felt weak. He felt like his efforts were empty. Everything's, I've, I've, I've got a little fruit to show for all that I've done. And yet, now we see him through the eyes of God rather than him through the eyes of himself and others. And through the eyes of God, he is seen as honored. Now, this word is a word for glory, and it, it actually is rooted in a word that means weighty. So, I might look light to others, but in the eyes of God, I'm heavy. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you had the choice, and you do, of looking light in the eyes of the world or weighty, and you had to be the opposite before God, what would you choose? You don't always have to choose that, but what would you choose? My hope is that you would take light before the world and heavy before God every time. We need to live before the eyes of God like this servant. And don't miss this. The servant values God's assessment of him over his own. It is washing over him. It is transforming him. It is re shaping him. He feels too weak for the task, and like all efforts, they lead to nothing from a human perspective. But in God's eyes, he's weighty, and he's what? Strong. The Lord is my strength. I felt weak, but God is in me. He is working through me. Now, it is not in this moment, I believe, that he is being infused with the strength of God, whereas he didn't have it before. No, I think now he sees that God has been his strength all along, doing things he did not see. And we finally hear what the servant says the Lord says in verse 6. That was just the servant talking about what's coming, what the Lord says, and here he goes. He says, the Lord, to the servant, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light of the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What, what a turn. Do you see it, what, what's happening the Lord says the task that the servant assessed is too weighty for himself is actually far too light for God's far-reaching purposes for him. He says you were too light 
too, too short-sighted. It's an imperfect illustration, but this scene reminds me of the scene from Men in Black. Sorry, I quote movies because I don't like to read. I'm joking, I love to read. But, but in that movie, you'll remember that Kay hands Jay a gun. And he calls it the noisy cricket. And he was all excited because they were going to fight big aliens. He was expecting like a massive manly gun. And he hands him this little thing called the noisy cricket. You can fit it in your pocket. You could probably keep it on your car chain. And, and he looks at it, and he's like, that is really small. In fact, it's so small, he loses confidence in it, even though the older, wiser K warns him of its power. But when Jay fires the noisy cricket for the first time, he is completely unready for the kind of power that comes out of it and knocks him back. Well, here, people tend to think of God's weapon, his word, as being weak. We tend to, when we believe lies, think that God's word and God's Christ is weak. But God here tells his weapon, his servant, he will not only bring back the preserved remnant of Israel, like he thought he was too weak to do, but he's going to make the servant a light for the nations to the end of the earth. Do you see it? It's, it's not just this task that you felt too big for you, that you're going to fail at that. I'm going to do more than you could imagine in drawing the nations to myself through your ministry. He will not only bring glory to Israel, that glory will give light to the nations trapped in a dark spiritual dungeon, destined for death, destined for sorrow and grief. In fact, the way the Hebrew reads, the, the servant doesn't just deliver salvation to the nations. Do you, do you see the way that it describes it? Th this servant, he himself, is God's salvation in his very person. Now that is a unique thing. Only God is called salvation. He is the salvation of God. And here, this son is, this servant is his salvation. But notice third, Divine initiative will cause a great reversal in verse 7. I think this is, this is fascinating. You see another, again, a, a kind of dramatic reversal that takes place. The servant presently feels despised by kings whom God promises will later rise and fall to worship him as the king of kings. So verse 7 says this. Look with me again at this. It says, thus says the Lord. The servant's still speaking. The Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One to the servant who He says, He describes as to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. But here's the change. Kings shall see and arise. Princes. And they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now, here again, the Lord appears as the kinsman redeemer who takes up the cause of his servant as his own. And did you catch how the servant was abhorred and despised by the nations? This servant, we are told, was abhorred before he was adored. And there's a massive change that takes place. We're not told how it happens. We just see that it happens, that it's striking. His faithfulness seemed to be weak, too weak to change Israel, but now he is worshipped by the very nations. 
Kings despise the servant before they arise and bow down before him. The despised servant, he becomes the king of kings. Why? Because the Lord, who is faithful, he chose the servant. And he brought about his purposes through him. What a reversal. And don't miss this. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of the word that centered on a word about his work at the cross. Now, there are a couple of points that, that I want to note here before we move on. First, you'll remember that Jesus told his disciples in Mark 8, 31 that he must suffer many things and be rejected by Israel and killed, but that on the third day he would rise again. What a reversal. You will die at the hands of men, and you will rise gloriously from the dead. Gloriously from the dead. Jesus experienced both unprecedented humiliation, a death, even a death on a cross, and unprecedented exaltation, being raised from the dead. But not just that, ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father. There's been none like him. But second, here, how can God promise that kings would bow before his son? I think this is a really important theological question. How can God make a promise like that? How can he promise you that he knows the end from the beginning? Well, I believe it's because God is sovereign even over the hearts of kings. You'll remember in Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he, being God, will. We have a God whose sovereignty is over uh, not just making sure birds get fed and flowers get clothed, but that hearts get directed. Now, I don't have time to, to get into all the nuances of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together, and so much of that is mystery, so we can spend a lot of our life doing that. But for now, what I do know is this. There is no human will that will thwart God's plans for God's people, no matter how bad it feels in the moment. God always brings about his purposes and promises. And here's what that means. Things feel like chaos in real time. Have you ever been there? Like, that's my day-to-day. -day. Feels like things are out of control. And the more people you love, the more it's going to feel that way. The more kids you have, the more it's going to feel that way for sure, right? But history is moving towards the fulfillment of this scene. This day. Let's not forget that in the chaos of every day. There is a glorious day that's coming where everything gets set right. Where joy replaces despair forever. No more sorrow. Every tear gets wiped away. That day is coming. That needs to be on the forefront of our minds. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks of this day in verses 9 to 11. That's where Jesus, after being humiliated on the cross for our sins, we are told he was raised and given a name above every name. That at that day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Is that day firmly fixed in your minds? It's a great way to help you find strength and clarity in days of chaos and despair. There's a scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where the giant despair drags Christian and hopeful off and he locks them in a dark, stinky dungeon. And he begins to beat them again and again, and he encourages them, look, you should just kill yourself. And then he begins to argue, doesn't death seem better than life? And there's Christian and 
hopeful in the dungeon of this giant despair. And he's trying to squeeze all of the hope out of that room so that they would rather end their lives. Why? So that they can't see out of the dungeon and see the future and the promises that await. In fact, all of a sudden, uh, and this might seem silly, but, you know, it's a story. You find that Christian's like, oh, hey, we don't have to get beat anymore. I forgot I have this key called promise in my bosom. And I think it's supposed to unlock every lock between us and freedom. Maybe we should just try to use that. And so he pulls it out. And he, he uses it. And one after the other, it fits every keyhole until finally they are free from despair. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes one after the next, looking to the promises of God, trusting in them, until they are released from their sorrow. There is a day that is coming where God's servant King Jesus will display God's hidden glory for all to see. And in that day, he will make good on all of those promises. Every tear will pass away. But until that day, we are called by faith to hold fast the promises of God that we do not get lost to despair and lose sight of the hope. We need to trust that this king will lead us out of slavery, not just a subjective sense of despair, but slavery, slavery to sin and death and its consequences. And that's really what we find in verses 8 to 12. This servant, he is leading a new exodus. Notice that timing is everything in verses 8 to 9. And it appears that the servant... Did you catch this? He has prayed for the day of salvation to come. He has asked the Lord. He has asked Him. That's what it means in verse 8 when it says, In the time of favor, the Lord, I have answered my servant. He's answering a servant because the servant has been crying out and calling to Him and asking for what? That He might deliver God's people out of bondage. And notice what He tells the servant. I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. Now some take this to speak of physical Israel being led out of bondage in Babylon, but the context seems to envision the, nat the nations being gathered on the last day. And, and notice the servant himself, he is a covenant to the people. He is their salvation. He is Israel. God made covenants with his people in the past, but this covenant will center on the person and work of this servant. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that communion is really a meal that celebrates the fact that Jesus has showed up as the covenant of God. In Luke, two, uh, in Luke 22, 20, as Jesus is giving communion, he says the new covenant arrived with his death and resurrection, and that communion is commemorating that with the wine, representing what? Jesus' blood of the new covenant. When we drink that, it means that we are part of these people that the servant has come for already. And we're awaiting the fulfillment of what is to come. Now the rest of verses 9 to 12 envision the servant leading them out as a shepherd, leads sheep through the wilderness. He's feeding them and protecting them, loving and leading them giving them drink where they are thirsty. He cares for his sheep. And God himself removes obstacles like mountains, which he claims as his mountains, and makes roads to free up people to come from afar, from the north and the west. Do you see that? Uh, even a place called Syene, which we don't know where that is for sure, but I'm guessing it's far away. 
And, and the fact that we don't know where it is means that even places we do not know, like there is no place that people will not be drawn from to worship before this servant. Of course, we know that Jesus came to redeem spiritual slaves living in bondage to sin and death. And everyone in this room is part of a new and greater exodus if you are in Christ, where God leads, guides, and sustains you by Christ himself. We, we feast on Christ. Christ sustains us, upholds us, cares for us, prays for us even now. He is interceding before the Father for you and me. He is a good Savior, a servant, who does not forget us when we forget Him. That Christ has come. And He is doing all of this in a world full of joys and sorrows, both happening simultaneously until the day when faith becomes sight and He wipes every tear away, every sorrow, every despair. And so how do you respond to a Savior like that showing up? Let me just ask, what would you do? Read verse 13. You sing about it. This is good news. Like, we don't sing because the music's good. Malachi, the music's really good. I don't know where you are, brother, but that's not a knock. The music is fantastic. I love the music. But we don't sing really loudly because the music is really good. We sing really loudly because Jesus is really good. Right? Like, if we're like, oh, that's not really doing it for me. I'm not really feeling, you know, involved in loving Jesus today because you're not helping me do that. Like, we want to help you, but... And our hearts, they ought to come kindled and looking to be kindled towards singing, towards the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. Uh, notice fifth, joyful singing is the right response to King Jesus. Uh, that is the right response. That's not the response he always gets, but that's the response he always deserves. Uh, this song calls all of, of creation to sing joyfully because God's covenant promises to Adam, Abraham, Israel, and David, they have not been thwarted despite our failures. God will fulfill his promises to bless the nations by re replacing their despair with singing through his faithful servant. He says this. He says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So let me close with a, a few uh, applications as we go. Christian and Trinity Bible Church we might not know the future. We might not know what the future holds. But we do know the one who holds the future in his hands. God seeks to comfort his afflicted people. That's, that's us in Christ. Christ is for us. So let me just encourage you today. It's a great day to resolve yourself to hold even more tightly to the promises of God in Christ than ever. Hold fast to them. Second, Pray, pray for yourself in your grief and in your despair as Christ prays for you. Isn't that encouraging to know you've had a friend pray for you and you felt the strength of that? Know that as you pray, Christ, Christ is interceding for you as you are interceding for yourself and others. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you in your despair as you fight to hope in God and pray that you would see the beauty of the future from the darkness of your current despair. Christ will meet you in that. Give yourself to reading God's Word daily. Join a community group. Find somebody to meet with one-to-one. -one. Come to equipping classes. Fill your heart with the promises of God. 
It's not just about checking something off a list. You are fighting for your joy in that. You're fighting to make sure your eyes are set on Him and not your surroundings. Give yourself to reading God's Word. Sing. Like, I love that we sing together. Let's always grow in that. When we sing to the Lord, when we are praising His name together, we need to sing loudly so that we are singing the future promises of God. And those who, that have already been fulfilled, we are singing them into our hearts and the hearts of our brothers and sisters. When you come and you're singing, be ready to minister to others through the song of the Word. Pray that the Lord would maybe even convert an unbeliever who is here as they are looking at you singing and they begin to believe that you believe the things that you are singing about. Evangelize. Acts 13.47 quotes verse 6 speaking of Christ as a light to the nations. But the way that Paul uses it, Paul and Bartimus, they use it to say that it is their responsibility to be a light to the nations. Now, how do they use verse 6, which was speaking of this new Israel, and then all of a sudden say, well, this is about our responsibility to be a light? Well, here's what I think is going on. I think he sees that he is so united to Christ that what Christ's mission is, is his mission. If Jesus is about reaching the ends of the earth with the knowledge of his glory and displaying his beauty, that's what I'm about. You, you know how this works. Like, sometimes I watch Hallmark movies because my wife likes them, not me. So if you come in and you see that, you know, on our TV, that's not me watching that on purpose. It's because I love my wife and I love the things that she loves. And should we not love Jesus more than anything? And should we not love what Jesus loves and be about the mission that he's about? Now, if you're here this morning and you are a non-Christian, let me just encourage you as we go. Maybe you're, you're living life and you don't, you don't recognize the power of God on display in Christ and His church. You feel like the world is chaos and there's no way that there's a sovereignty that's over it, working all things together for His good, your good, His glory. But know this, there is a God who sustains and governs this world and it is moving, no matter how chaotic it seems, towards His glory and the good of His people those connected to his servants. And if you put your faith in Christ, all of the despairs that you find yourselves overwhelmed by, that sense of the fact that pain just gets worse and it doesn't go away, or the sense that there is no future hope and this life doesn't matter at all, all of those things find an answer in Christ. Life, you are made with a purpose. You are made for the glory of God. Despair is the alarm that awakens you to the fact that you need something outside of yourself. You need light that's not inside. It's all darkness. It is Christ. And if you've not put your faith in Him, and you don't sense that you have that purpose that you find only in Christ, please don't leave without trusting Him today. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to me. I would love to walk you through it. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Will you pray with me?